This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript The Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jammer link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jammer. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code JavaScriptJabber, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Dave Smith. Hello. Jameson Dance. Hello. Amy Knight. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. This week we have a special guest, and that's Dan Abramov. Hi, this is me. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. My name is Dan, and I've been doing React stuff recently. And you might have seen my talk at React Europe called Hot Reloading the Time Travel. So I mostly work on developer tools for uh, React and its ecosystem. I have so many questions because I think the stuff you do is as interesting as the path you took to doing it. Can you talk to us about how you got into programming and kind of your journey to building stuff with React? Yeah, I think it it was when I was about 12 years old and uh, where I lived, we didn't have computers in every home at the time. So I got it really late, uh, I think. And I would often, we had a computer class at school where we had assignments like creating PowerPoint presentations, stuff like that. When I got a computer, uh, my favorite software was Microsoft PowerPoint because I really liked how I could create animation steps. Like you, you can say that this thing goes from the, from this corner of the screen to the center, then something else happens, then something else happens. So it felt really fun to me, uh, for some reason. And one day I, uh, by accident, I discovered makers. There was a, a record button, a play button, and I could record my actions and then press play and they would repeat. And I could actually press edit and see some lines of nonsensical English words. Uh, and if I changed the, the numbers inside, different things would happen. So this got me hooked. And I asked my grandma, uh, who was very supportive, to every weekend she would take me to a bookshop where I would pick the uh, thickest book on Visual Basic, because that was uh, Visual Basic for applications. And I would learn about Visual Basic. So that's how I started. And I just went from there. I'm so glad you were able to recover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, uh, honestly, I know people love to uh, bash on Java, uh, on, sorry, not JavaScript, uh, Visual Basic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, uh, you know, I may have not started programming if it was not for Visual Basic because it gave me an immediate connection to what I was doing because I could just, you know, drag and drop some buttons and I have this uh, window which uh, which I see in development mode and it's the same thing that runs in uh, production mode. So I, I, I kind of interact with it directly and I really like that. I tried several times to start from Pascal or C, but yeah, I never could do it because I didn't have this kind of connection. So yeah, that was a big thing for me. I'm grateful to Visual Basic. So this is a kind of tangential question. 
Do you think there are tools that are like that, that are just so easy for beginners or easier for beginners to get into that also scale up more that you'd be fine kind of building your career on? Or is it kind of these tools that make it easy to get into programming? And then once you're more experienced, you switch to something else. I haven't really seen a tool, um, a visual tool like this that scales, but I don't think it's because uh, they are inherently uh, unscalable. I think it's just the right tools haven't come up yet. Sure. So why don't you tell us, Dan, about what you've been doing with uh, Redux and what kind of tools you've been building for the React ecosystem? Yeah, I actually didn't intend to write Redux. It was just a byproduct of me working on my talk. Because when I, I really wanted to go to Paris when the, <laughs> when the React Europe was announced. And I knew that, the, that there was a call for proposals where I needed to like describe what I, what I was supposed to talk about. And people would choose like, Hey, okay. Yeah. This guy, uh, is doing interesting stuff. Let's, uh, let's get him here. So I needed to come up with something. And I knew if I just, uh, at least that's what I feared. I thought that if I proposed something like uh, hot reloading, people would be like, yeah, we've seen that already, right? Because it was uh, on React Conf. Uh, the, there was Ambidex, uh, which uh, uses React Authorder internally. And I thought that I'd be showing the same thing. It's kind of boring. So I felt I needed to add something to it. And I decided to write uh, hot reloading with time travel because time travel is something that interested me a lot. Then I was working a lot on the application where uh, it was very stateful and I would spend a lot of time tweaking block stores and they're not hot reloadable. So it was a big issue for me productivity wise. And I just thought, okay, maybe I can try that. And if they approve my talk, I'll come up with some way of actually implementing it. So uh, I proposed it and uh, the talk was accepted and I was in panic mode, like, how do I actually, <laughs> what do I do? now. So I slacked off for a while. Uh, I just procrastinated and was doing uh, an, a different library. I was working on React D. I decided to postpone uh, this React Europe stuff, but then it was June already and I had just one month and I had to do something. So I've been thinking about it in background and I decided to create a small Flux-like framework for my talk, like a proof of concept. And the main idea is that like in Flux, uh, you have actions you have these objects, instead of mutating the data, you describe mutations as objects like in Flux. And every mutation, for example, if you press a like button, it says it, it's an object with a type pressed and user ID is some ID and so on. So uh, if you replay these mutations in the same order, you're going to end up with the same state. And the difference from Flux is that in Flux, you have many stores. Uh, which are objects or classes, depending on the implementation, which listen to these actions and modify their internal state uh, according to them. But my problem with Flux was that because this state is inside these stores, then if I change the store logic, I can't really hot load it because if I replace one instance of store with uh, a new instance, a reevaluated instance with a new code uh, is going to wipe out the state. So all I did was turn uh, Flux stores into functions. And later I realized it's exactly the same thing as Elm architecture. So if you're interested, you can go check out Elm architecture. It describes the same ideas. One thing I was afraid of is that I won't be able to finish it in time. So I decided to open source it before the talk and maybe somebody would help me out. And it turned out that people really enjoyed the API, which is really small and started, uh, I received a lot of help from everyone and especially Andrew Clark of Flummox. But really the only reason I built it is to have this time traveling debugger with hot reloading of uh, re uh, logic that uh, I demoed at the talk. That is the best example I've ever heard of talk-driven development. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is talk-driven development, exactly. <laughs> That's great. And what, um, what better year than 2015 to invent time travel, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, whenever you invent time travel, hasn't it just always been invented? That's then? true. <laughs> <laughs> so had you played with or heard of Elm beforehand, or did you just realize the parallels afterwards? 
Yeah, uh, there's been this, I'm kind of feeling guilty about it because uh, I had this Twitter exchange with Evan and Evan was uh, a bit uncomfortable with me not mentioning Elm as much as he thought I should. And I felt that, yeah, he's probably right because I read about Elm a few times before actually creating Redux. And I'm not sure if, you know, when you get inspired by something, but don't fully understand it and later you kind of reproduce it, but you don't really get this connection and you only get sure. it later. So I think that's kind of what happened because I distinctly remember reading about Elm architecture, but I was thrown off by the syntax. So I, I didn't fully understand what's going on there. And later after some initial iterations of Redux, uh, Andrew Clark actually showed me how it's similar to Elm if we change some things and we did change them. So yeah, I have not actually played with Elm yet. I've seen other people playing with it. I've seen some demos, but I have not uh, actually played with it myself. I, I really want to, but I'm stuck in maintaining and GitHub issues and <laughs> I can't find the time. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm just afraid it's going to be so awesome that I'll just uh, drop JavaScript. It'll about. be sad. <laughs> <laughs> that line between inspiration and like just porting something is kind of tricky. But I mean... Yeah. I think the JavaScript world is better off. There are a lot of people that will never get into Elm just because of the syntax and the type system and stuff. And I think it's valuable if you can expose them to the ideas about stateless architecture like this. So it seems like a great thing overall. Yeah, but just to clarify, Redux is still a long, long way from Elm in terms of we can't do a lot of things because we're in JavaScript land. So Elm is a lot more powerful. Uh, these concepts are a lot more clean in Elm and are more expressive. So what we're doing in Redux is just uh, a pale imitation of Elm. So in, in Redux, your reducers are supposed to be stateless, right? Like they just take in data and return data? Yeah, these are just functions. It's, it's kind of like you have React components that if they're simple enough, you can express them as pure functions, right? They take uh, the data and return the React elements. And in Redux, it's kind of similar because uh, you have these other pure functions, the data and the action and return the next data. And just like React components are composed in a tree, you have this tree of functions uh, and your whole application is expressed as one tree of functions. It's exactly the same way in Redux where you have reducers calling each other and there is this tree of reducers. It's kind of like React for data, but not really because it's not like Relay. I mean, Relay is awesome. I really look forward to playing with it. Uh, Redux doesn't try to solve the problems that Relay solves. So I'm in the spot where I have this immensely popular library, but there are so much better things out there that, uh, I don't know, I feel small, but I, it's good. It's good. I think you're being too humble. I didn't use any of the Flux-ish libraries until Redux because it felt like they were all kind of, no one had quite got it right. And Redux is the first one that seems like it's just super solid. And maybe solid's the wrong word, that it fits my brain well. So I love it. Yeah. It's great. Thanks. I actually had a question along those lines and wanted to kind of back up for a brief second. So I have two questions. The first question, for people who may not be exactly familiar about hot reloading, I think there is like some confusion between that or hot, like hot swapping. And there's some confusion between that and just like reloading your browser. So if you can maybe clarify for people that aren't familiar that. And then my question, which was more along with what we were just talking about, was you retweeted something recently that you just said that React led to um, like better code quality. So I feel like everybody knows React at this point, but maybe kind of talk about that a little bit more for people who haven't done a ton with it. So yeah, are, sure. are, you, are you saying that hot reloading is not just hitting command R like really fast? <laughs> it's surprising it's people think that just like live reload. Um, it's yeah, yeah, it's confusing. It's I've seen this confusion. So <laughs> <laughs> sweaty reloading. They don't so I think like they hear this and they're like, okay, so, but no, then, a, no you don't understand. Yeah, it's a good, yeah. it's a really good question. You don't understand what this actually is. 
Yeah, that's true. I've seen it. I talked to a guy uh, who said that, I don't know if you know him, uh, Sunil Pal, he, uh, Pai, sorry, Sunil Pai. He works uh, at a e-commerce company in India and they starting to use React uh, a lot. And every time he, he, he tells somebody about hot reloading, they're like, ah, uh, yeah, hot reloading. Uh, and he says, that, no, like, Come over to my desktop. <laughs> I'm going to show you. And they're like, oh, <laughs> they, they don't even understand what's going on. So <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it, it's different from a life reload, which I think is life reload is a thing that it's like a server and a client and the client connects to server. And wherever there is a change in code, it just like hits refresh button for you. So life reload is that, but hot reloading is. A different thing is when you're able to change the code and have it magically change in your running application. And in some cases, the, the, the specifics are different. Like if you use React, there is some trickery to proxy, uh, proxy methods. So React component methods start pointing at their new versions, but you don't really see this. This is all machinery hidden away from you uh, by React Offloader. So what you really see is that you make a change to your render method and it just, the DOM doesn't go away. The state of the components doesn't go away. It just changes in your browser. The first time you try it, you become so addicted to this that you can just, I tried to uh, work with uh, other libraries a little bit and I found myself, oh, I have to hit refresh or even, oh, it, it reloaded, it messed up my scroll position, my state, my current input and so on. It's just so hard to iterate. So I think even if React Hot Loader itself is not very impressive piece of tech because it has a lot of hacks. Uh, it, it isn't really pure, uh, like some closure script uh, tools for the same uh, hot reloading. But I think it elevated the expectations of people as to what web tooling, what development tooling, should, uh, what is the baseline for develop, uh, development tooling? What do we agree must be included? So, yeah, I, th I think that was uh, important in terms of what React Authority accomplished. And as, uh, did I answer your first question? Yes, you did. Okay. The, the second question was regarding uh, me retweeting somebody who said that React uh, really makes you a better JavaScript developer. Is that correct? Yep. Uh, so it's a popular sentiment. And so people, if they haven't done a lot with React, maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. Because I definitely think it's true too. Yeah, I would say React definitely made me a better uh, JavaScript developer. I'm not sure why. <laughs> it's a mystery to me too. I, I haven't really thought about it. I think maybe it's because React has really little API surface. So whereas in Angular, for example, and I don't mean to bash Angular, but it's the same thing for Ember, and many other front-end libraries, they have a lot of APIs. If you look at Google Trends, at the popularity of React and Angular searches, it looks like Angular is a uh, hundred times more popular than React. But I think maybe one of the reasons people don't Google React so often is because it has very little API. Because once I was developing an Angular app and I had to Google APIs every day because uh, they have many classes, methods, uh, directives, whatever. So what React forces you to do is to build your own abstractions and build your own tools with very little that React gives you. But it turns out that this is actually enough to create complex user interfaces. So I think it's just the focus that React provides you and it just forces you to think as a JavaScript developer, I guess. And it, it doesn't have any template syntax that uh, is, again, is magic syntax you have to learn and then it is compiled by some JavaScript functions into actual JavaScript functions. You have none of that. You just, if you need to write uh, for each uh, or iterate over something, you just use map. And if you don't know how to use map, you have to Google it. You have to learn about uh, JavaScript array methods. And I think this is why React pushes you to be a better JavaScript developer, because you have to actually uh, learn about JavaScript APIs. 
So I hope that helps. That's good. Yeah, I've had the same experience and heard several people say that as well. I think that's the answer. Maybe another reason it helps you become a JavaScript developer is because the unit of composition in React is the component. So it makes it easier to break things apart into pieces. Where in Angular, if you're building a quick app, um, you can have one controller and throw everything on scope. And it's so convenient. It's just like so fast to get stuff done. Um, and in React, it, it feels ickier to do that. I feel like the framework yeah. encourages you to break things into smaller pieces, which is maybe a little more annoying in, in small applications, but I think maybe better overall. And, and I mean, if you build a huge Angular app, you don't just throw everything on scope in one controller. I think um, to differ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm, that's not a criticism of Angular, it's just more like the default way of building things in React encourages you to do good things, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It also encourages you to use a build system and to have modules. Which it does. Actually, a lot of frameworks don't. Although, like... Spoiler alert, or to pop your bubble, I am proof that you can write crappy React code. <laughs> React will not save you from bad code. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> I, I asked on Twitter if anyone had questions for you, Dan, and the hardest hitting question was from Jordan Scales. He asked, what product do you use for your hair? <laughs> <laughs> oh. I, I, don't, I don't remember. I don't, I, okay. I, I don't know. <laughs> but it, it's got to, there is a drawing of two guys there. I think it's the same guy, but with two faces, two different faces. One is like more like lover mode and the other is like more fighter mode. And I think it says that it's like thick and something else. Okay. Well, anyway, it, it looks fancy. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I think that was a sneaky compliment about your hair. <laughs> yeah, I'm like Craig Federighi. <laughs> okay, so we talked about hot reloading. Did we talk about time travel? Like really in detail? Should we go into that some more? Yeah, we can. W what would you like to know? Like how it uh, works? I just want to know how I can go back into my childhood and fix all the mistakes. <laughs> I made. Sorry, can't help you here. <laughs> well, what can you do for me then? In my code, at least. Well, the only thing is it's, sometimes people get confused about it a little bit because they there are some Flux libraries that, that have time travel, but as far as I know, it works differently. And when people usually see time travel, what they mean is the ability to select any previous state of your application to like jump there and to stay there. And once you're, you've satisfied your curiosity, you can jump back somewhere. Or you can drag a slider and see how your animation, uh, see how it uh, changes over time. But what Redux with uh, its developer tools, its opt-in feature, it is not uh, enabled by default because it's uh, it wastes memory and performance. It's only for development. So what Redux DevTools does is a little bit different because it doesn't just let you go back to the past states, like snapshots of the uh, past states. But what actually happens is that it remembers not the states, but the actions. It remembers what happened. Remember, I told you that every mutation in Redux app is uh, uh, caused by a plain object called action. So these actions, they can be serialized, deserialized, you can restore previous sessions. But what's important is that these are not just state snapshots. These are action snapshots. And what's the difference? Like, what's the matter? So the difference is when you combine that with hot reloading, you can change the logic of your reducers, the functions that actually tell how state is influenced by the actions and recompute the states anytime you change the code. So what happens is if I have a reducer that says anytime a to-do is added, it's added at the end of a JavaScript array, uh, right? I have this piece of code, this function. And uh, I can, with Redux DevTools, I can go back, uh, I can uh, cancel actions, like cross them out as if they never existed. And by doing this, I effectively go back in time. But what's really interesting is that I can change the code of the reducer and say, okay, I want this to do at the beginning and not at the end of the array. And when I change the code, 
Redux DevTools is going to recalculate all the states based on the same actions. And now my to-dos are going to be in the opposite order. So that's uh, the whole point. It does not just let you jump to states. It lets you actually interact with the whole history of everything that uh, happened in the app. And this is useful when you, you have some scenario where uh, there is a, a lot of actions going on and you want to make sure that whatever order you process them in, they're going to evaluate to something, uh, to the correct state. And then you can go back, go forward. But it's not just about jumping. It's about interaction with what happened in your app. It, yeah. it, so it sounds really good and it looked really good in your React Europe talk. But I wonder in practice... How does it really work out when you have big apps with lots of actions and lots of reducers? Do things get too complicated to manage in your Redux dev tools? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's just me and a bunch of folks helping out. But of course, what I'm showing is a proof of concept that this is possible. I know a lot of people are actually using that in development. So it's better to ask them, like, is it working out for them? I know that there are a lot of issues you'd have in a real world app where it's just more complicated and it doesn't fit on the screen or it happens too fast. But my point was to show that this is solvable. You can take some time off your job and uh, make a pull request for a Redux developer tools to have filtering because they're just a React component. And bam, you have filtering. You have, uh, I don't know, uh, filtering of state or filtering of actions. And there is an issue about an alternative uh, user interface for them, a suggestion, where instead of showing all actions at once, uh, when you want to work on a particular part of the logic, you just uh, select the actions you care about. And they're going to be like a garage band loop. They're going to be replayed anytime you change the code, but the rest of the actions are going to be ignored so you can focus on this piece. And if Ajax request that is unrelated to what you're working on comes up, it's going to be ignored because that's not your focus. But it's not implemented yet, but you can go ahead and try because everything is there for you to help me make it a, a better tool. Uh, I just don't have enough horsepower to uh, create uh, you know, uh, amazing production-ready developer tools. I could use some help with that. But I'm showing that it is possible. It, uh, there is no obstacle uh, except time here. To me, that was the main, almost the main takeaway from your talk is that it's actually really valuable to spend time making your tooling better. I can sometimes just get my head's kind of can just get put my head down, get stuck in a rut where I'm just cranking so hard on the the individual problems that I'm working on that I don't step back and think, is there a thing I could build that would make any kind of problem similar to this easier? It seems like there are some classes of problems that are really well solved by having the time traveling debugger, but it's more like the inspiration to build other tools similar to that that will solve other kinds of problems too. Yeah. Dave, you talked about the time traveling debugger thing, not scaling or, or maybe potentially having scaling problems in large apps. I know CircleCI had that blog post they did a while ago around some dev tools they built. They're using OM, so it's not Redux, but it's kind of a similar approach where you have a centralized place for all your data in your app. And they added a thing to just export the data and then paste it back in so they can easily debug weird states in their app. If a QA person oh, yeah. gets in a weird state, they just hit a key command, it dumps the data out to the console, they can copy it and paste it into it. I think I saw computer. that. That's like an instantaneous state snapshot, right? Yeah, yeah. So maybe that's a good thing to talk about. One of the assumptions Redux makes is that there's a central place in your app for all the data. Can you explain that a little bit more and why you did that and talk about kind of the advantages and disadvantages of it? Yeah, sure. Redux is nothing new because it borrows extensively from Ohm and from Elm. And I think it's not that similar to Ohm because it has the first class concept of reducers and actions and Ohm doesn't really care about that. Yeah, Ohm is like more low level in this regard. Uh, it's more similar to Elm. But anyway, the idea is that if you don't hold your state in a single place, you're going to end up with inconsistencies. And this was the problem that Flux was also trying to solve. Like if you have a bunch of backbone models that reference other backbone models, and uh, at some point you're going to have collections of backbone models, and you're going to have duplicates, 
like when you read the response from server and you have this graph of objects that uh, reference each other, but uh, there is this uh, movie object representing some movie and there is some another movie object representing the same movie because it was deserialized and they are not related to each other. So if you change one, the other is not going to update, you end up with an inconsistency. And it's just prevalent in backbone apps because it's so hard to make sure that there is a single entity cache that uh, everything is, when deserialized, is resolved to it. I know SoundCloud tried to do this, but Flux model is much easier here that you have this root state. And in Flux, there is no concept of root state, but it's presumed that these stores are singletons. So you can think of them as state tree because it's essentially the same thing. You have several Flux stores and each has its own same tree. So how is this really different from having just one state tree? And Redux kind of takes this approach to extreme, just like uh, Elm and Ohm, because there is no uh, real advantage to having many stores when you can just have a single tree and subscribe to updates at different levels of the tree. And um, of course, the advantages of this approach is that your state, first of all, if there is a single state tree, then your app is more deterministic because you can't really have one thing update without the other. Every update comes through the same central place. And it's similar to how uh, when you have React components that call set state everywhere, it's, it kind of negates the benefits of React. It's very hard to trace when there is a lot of setting state. Uh, so it's better to have less components that are stateful. And this is the same idea that uh, it's better to have one entry point for any state change because then you can log it. You can have these time travel tools. You can r restore it or persist it and you don't have to do anything fancy to accomplish this because you have one method that changes the state. And if something is wrong, your debugging procedure is super easy. Put a console log before and after the state change and you can see where exactly uh, the problem occurred. Because with backbone models, it was a mess. If there is some stray AJAX request that came back and changed the model and you don't have a breakpoint there because you don't know which model exactly was changed. So you don't have this single centralized way of mutations. This is the only reason we have this uh, single state tree in Redux for predictability. That's why it's called predictable state container. So I, I'm not sure I can think of many other benefits here. I think I, I fully transitioned to uh, just thinking about a, sing, a single uh, state tree all the time. So I kind of find it weird now to think about any other ways of managing the state. It seems like when you first hear it, it just feels weird because it's so different from how you often manage data. But it's not, I mean... If you, you have one server... component tree, right? Like how yeah. is that different from... Uh, I, I mean, you could say that it's better to have many views that call each other, but exist separately. But I think we've all learned from React that it's not. It's better to have a tree that is uh, governed by declarative nesting. So it's the same idea here. You have a component tree and you have a state tree. You have the two trees that sync with each other. Yeah, it's kind of like, I mean, for most web apps, you'll have one database or one kind of point where you talk with all your backend data store stuff. And it's not that different conceptually either. And people are yeah. fine with that, right? This giant global variable that holds all of your data. And for some reason, when you do it in the browser, it seems weird at first. Yeah, it's like a, a database. Exactly. Yeah, I guess it would be kind of like having 12 different servers you have to talk to to get different pieces of data. Yeah, which obviously I mean, doesn't make yeah. sense. But yeah, and imagine that they that don't have that databases that okay. they hold everything in, in global variables on Sounds the server. Sounds like my code. <laughs> <laughs> database is a good idea. So database on the client is just a reflection of client getting more sophisticated and needing that kind of control and a login. So I, I saw a while ago you launched a funding drive to help people fund your work on, on the Redux stuff. Is that your main employment right now? Or are you employed by a company? Yeah, you just yeah that's, that's the only thing I do. Uh, I mean, I promised a lot of stuff and I have to 
I have to actually do it like uh, Egghead screencasts. I know Egghead people hate me because uh, they delivered the equipment to me. I'm actually speaking in their mic right now. And I'm supposed <laughs> to make these Redux videos and I can't get started. But I, I promise I will get started. And it went really well. It's uh, I don't do any contract work right now. I don't I don't review anybody's code. So... Yeah, it's amazing. I didn't expect it to actually happen so fast and so well. It was just a crazy idea I had at React Europe because I was thinking, oh no, I can't go back to contracting right now because I have to finish this stuff. So yeah, it's temporary. I only intend to run this campaign for three months. It's going to end in October, I suppose. But it's been really helpful in helping me get in a, uh, and I don't know if you saw React Transform, which is the replacement for React Hot Loader that I haven't really talked about much yet. No. But it, yeah, it's, it's the new thing. Uh, it, it tries to address the flaws with React Hot Loader. I intend to write the medium article soon. But anyway, uh, it, it wouldn't be possible to release that without help from companies and individuals who sponsored Patreon. So. Thank you to everyone. I really appreciate that. Can you talk a little bit more about the React Transform thing? Or is that something you're not ready to talk about? Yeah, no, sure. I, I am ready, actually. I this discovered is the first that... I've heard of it. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, I don't know. I, I probably live in a little bubble because lately, anytime I release something, people retweet and favorite like crazy. And I'm like, oh, maybe I don't have to explain it. They seem to have gotten it. <laughs> but then I realized, no. <laughs> Uh, it's just a bubble. So what it is, is that a React Code Loader is a webpack, a tied piece of tech. It's a, a compiled time transformation for webpack. So what it does is it looks at your module experts and it wraps uh, everything that looks like a React class into its special transform. So the problem with React Code Loader is that it's impossible for it to find any classes that are not exported. For example, classes inside functions, or for example, classes that are wrapped with higher order components, like you connect something to a Redux store, and then the component inside the connect, record loader doesn't see it. So it can't preserve its state when you change the code. So that was a big problem for me. And also a lot of people are skeptic of Webpack and I kind of understand where they're coming from and I want to, uh, th there are several uh, React Hot Loader-like projects for Browserify and other tools and what I wanted to make easy is uh, they, they all have some portions of code that are kind of similar but they can't share it so what I wanted is to turn React Hot Loader into infrastructure for such projects that does not depend on Webpack. So what I came up with, I split React Hot Loader in like three or four different projects. And I didn't just do it because I love modularity, but it's very practical. So one of these projects is called, and it's the lowest level project, it's called React Proxy. And React Proxy is just library that lets you wrap a React component class and it lets you update it on the fly with new versions of it. But it exports a proxy class that acts as if nothing happened. So it's like record loader's proxy logic, the heart of record loader, but that is not tied to any build tool. And of course, you wouldn't use it directly, but uh, it, it's a logic. So if somebody's writing uh, a browser, if I have to load in tool, they can use React proxy for that. And another project is React Transform, and it's kind of an umbrella of projects. In fact, there is no project called React Transform. <laughs> it's just a placeholder right now. But there is Bebel plugin for React Transform and there are several transforms. And the main idea is to have the say, uh, is to have a shared API that can potentially be implemented with different build tools like Webpack or Bebel or Browserify, or some combination of them. And the idea is that there is some way of extracting React components from your code. For example, I have a Bebel plugin that does it, but you can potentially write a Webpack loader 
that inspects module exports exactly like React Loader used to do and grab component classes from there. But what is important is that it finds all React classes in your code base and it runs arbitrary functions on them that can do something with them. And one example of doing something is, and I call these things React Transforms. So uh, one such transform is React Transform Catch Errors which wraps random method into a try-catch statement. And if uh, it uh, threw an error, it's going to return uh, a special component saying, hey, you have an error on this line. Like in React Native, you have this red box uh, of death. So that's kind of similar thing. And the idea is that you can apply it today with, Bebel, with my Bebel plugin, Bebel plugin React Transform. You configure it to use React Transform catch errors, but you can write custom transforms that do something else. And one such transform is a React Transformer, a React Transform Webpack HMR, which stands for Hot Model Replacement, which does exactly what React Loader used to do. So I ported it to be a transform for React Transform. And potentially you can write something like React Transform Browserify Hot Reload or something. Uh, that does it in a different way. And it can use React Proxy or it can use something else. So the idea is to split the projects that I created so uh, people can use just the stuff that they're interested in and uh, develop on top of them. Super cool. There seem to be some interest in the community for creating some libraries to use Redux outside of React. Can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, sure. I'm not super familiar with that. Uh, I haven't investigated any of them closely, but I mean, Redux is literally, it's, it's very small. And why I'm saying that is that it doesn't make a lot of assumptions. Like it doesn't include any React helpers uh, inside of it. So React bindings are a separate project. And there was this other project called NG Redux which are Angular bindings for Redux. And I, I haven't worked with that, but it has a similar API to React Redux. And the idea is that Redux is just a state container. And if you have a framework that can efficiently re-render its views based on a change in a state tree, then you can use it with Redux and have all the ecosystem of Redux available to you. In fact, I've seen people using Redux DevTools inside an Ember application because Redux DevTools is a React component, but that's an implementation detail. I mean, who forbids you to mount a React component somewhere in Ember app, right? And what happens is that they use Redux with Ember, but they have React-powered developer tools, <laughs> which is kind of fun. And I enjoy this kind of mixing and collaboration between frameworks because one thing that really prevents us from moving into future is how we stick to our uh, little silos. Uh, like, oh, they're using Angular. I'm not going to look at their code, right? And even if there are really great ideas that React doesn't pick up, people don't even notice them. And it, it goes both ways. So I'm really happy that in the past year, I think there has been a lot of collaboration between Angular, yeah, Ember, React, and other developers. It's really cool to see that finally happening. So I, I'm not sure if I answered your question. I kind of got into a different thing. Nope, you did. That was good. Okay. And then my final question, and you are like the ultimate in programmer productivity. So everyone likes to fight about editors. I want to know what you use because I'm going to switch to it like tonight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm afraid I'm going to dis disappoint you in this because I'm afraid to check Atom because if it's really fast enough now, I'll have to migrate and I hate migrating to something. <laughs> so right now I'm I'm still using Sublime Text 3, although it is pretty stable for me. I, I don't use any plugins on purpose because people, uh, because I'm going to be sad when I'll have to abandon them and search for their counterparts in Atom world. <laughs> so right now I'm just, I don't know, I'm just waiting for my Sublime to break like a refrigerator when refrigerator breaks <laughs> you have to buy a new one so that's kind of what I'm switching to sublime <laughs> it, it keeps your code cold 
If I switched editors yeah. every time my editor broke, then I would have <laughs> long ago. I really enjoy Space Gray UI theme for it with Oceanic Next color scheme for JavaScript and Bevel uh, JavaScript Sublime Package because it's just it's a setup that is most friendly to ES6 code. And Space Gray was actually created by a coworker of mine. It's crazy popular. It's like 6,000 stars. And I'm still catching up with Redux. Redux is not yet as popular as his theme. <laughs> so uh, it's really great. I love it. And I'll miss it if I switch to Atom. Do you have anything that you wish we would have asked you that we didn't? Yeah, maybe, I don't know, future plans or something. Although, yeah. although you see, the problem is, Right now, I'm in the middle of something that is, I might join a company, but it's still in the process. So yeah, I'm not sure I'm ready to talk about it yet. <laughs> so you announced that there might be an announcement just now. Yeah, yeah, kind of. I mean, I'm going to move to another country. Again, if it works out well, because I'm always uh, panicky. There, there, there isn't such a word, right? No, that's a word. Uh, okay. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm always panicky <laughs> about paperwork and visas and all that kind of stuff. It just, you know, once I had to fill four forms, which is not a lot, right? But in my mind, it felt like I had a nervous breakdown. So my wife had to call me and say like, hey, I, I was like, I, I'm going to show you what I went through. And I was showing these four forms and I realized, oh, wait, I just filled four forms. It's not a big deal. What, I, what am I writing <laughs> about? But it, it felt like, <laughs> I don't know, like a mountain of paperwork. Anyway, I'm, I'm trying to move to another country because it, it doesn't feel very safe in Russia right now. And I certainly like, like to live in a different place. So I might be moving in the coming few months and I might be joining a company. Cool. But that's sad to hear. You're so nice. I don't want you guys to feel scared. <laughs> I'm sure Microsoft will love to have you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> All right, let's get to the picks. Before we get to picks, I want to take some time to thank our silver sponsors. This episode is sponsored by TrackJS. Let's face it, errors cost you money. You lose customers, server resources, and time to them. Wouldn't it be nice if someone told you how and when they happened so you could fix them before they cost you big time? You may have this on your backend application code, but what about your front-end JavaScript? It's time to check out TrackJS. It tracks errors and usage and helps you find bugs before your customers even report them. Go check them out at trackjs.com slash jsjabber. This episode is sponsored by CodeSchool. CodeSchool is an online learning destination for existing and aspiring developers that teach us through entertaining content. They provide immersive video lessons with in-browser challenges, which means that each course has a unique theme and storyline and feels much more like a game. Whether you've been programming for a long time or have only just begun, CodeSchool has something for everyone. You can master Ruby on Rails or JavaScript, as well as Git, HTML, CSS, and iOS. And more than a million people around the world use CodeSchool to improve their development skills by learning or doing. You can sign up at codeschool.com slash javascriptjabber. Amy, do you want to start us with picks? One of my picks is not really anything, it's not a library or anything like that. But so I've been working with this mentor and he's really encouraged me to start digging into some actual RFCs. So as a newer programmer, this seems maybe a little bit scary at first, but it turns out it's actually been uh, immensely helpful and it hasn't been as bad at all as I thought it would be. So that is my pick. If you're newer and you haven't dug into some of these, like the OAuth one, maybe that's not the best one to start with, but <laughs> even that one hasn't been so bad um, so far. Or the HTTP one, I'd highly recommend people go and actually look at these because it will really help you understand everything more. And that's it for me. All right, Jameson, what are your picks? I have three picks. One is a blog post by my friend Michael Reese. He works at a company called MX, and they just started an apprenticeship program. Um, so his blog post is about how they started it and kind of their goals for it. The parts that I really liked are when he talks about the struggle he had when he first started professionally programming, how there's kind of a gap from where you get your training, whether it's a boot camp or a, uh, a school, you still don't learn all the skills you need to actually build software full-time professionally. And he said he spent about a year kind of struggling and getting stuck and then unsticking himself. And part of the goal for their apprenticeship program is how can they reduce that time it takes to come up to speed? And, and his, so his goal is to make it take three months instead of a year if they 
consciously provide mentorship and, and guidance for these apprentices. It's a really cool idea. I'm jealous of it, and I might steal it depending on company circumstances. But it's a, it's a good read if you're uh, new or if you're looking to hire or if you just want to, kind of want to think about improving education in software. My second pick is a tweet by Sebastian. We had him on the show a few weeks ago to talk about Babel. And he's one of those young wizards that started programming when he was like in diapers or something. So he has all these emails saved from <laughs> when he was like 11, just emailing people about how awesome he is at programming games and how smart he is as a little kid. It's a pretty funny tweet. Uh, and he's, he's like laughing at himself. It's, yeah. it's all in good fun. My last pick is, oh my gosh, Metal Gear Solid Five. I haven't played Metal Gear games very much before, but this game is ridiculous. It's like a stealth action game. So you're big buff soldier man sneaking around in the in the wilderness beating people up but it has all these little twists that just make it weird and and game-like like you have a home base and when you knock guards out you can like hide their bodies or you can attach this balloon to them and then they get sucked up in the air and let out this yow this this loud like wilhelm scream they get picked up by a plane and taken back to your base and you like brainwash them to join your, your army kind of. Just all these like weird goony things. It's just a really fun open world systems game. It, it has a lot of little touches that make it more fun like that. So those are my picks. Joe, what are your picks? All right. So I have recently been watching, for me re-watching, with my daughters who are teenagers, Firefly. Been introducing them to the awesomeness that is Firefly and it's been, I don't know, probably a couple of years since I've watched. I've watched Firefly many times, but it's probably been a couple of years. And I'm just yet again amazed at what an amazing show Firefly was and how we as a society are less because it was canceled early. <laughs> <laughs> Collective sigh. It is not coming back. I really can't, can't think of a tragedy greater in human history. <laughs> <laughs> than the cancellation of Firefly. So I'm going to pick Firefly as my first pick. And then as my second pick, I'm going to pick Elm because I've been doing a lot of Elm lately. And it makes me happy to know and know my picks. I'm jealous. Why? Because I want to write Elm. Or just do it. More. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More in my free time. But yeah, I need more free time for that. <laughs> oh, just do it at work. And then when anyone asks you why you're not writing Angular, just tell them it's <laughs> Angular. <laughs> I'm sure that would go over really well. <laughs> yeah. Elmgular. It's <laughs> awesome. All right, Dave, what are your picks? Well, first of all, I just want to point out that if you look for Metal Gear Solid 5 YouTube videos, you can see balloons attached to cute little dogs, horses, <laughs> a sheep. That dog joins you and you can take them on missions. <laughs> What on earth is this? It's so that's that's the beauty of the game. It's just bonkers. <laughs> it's bonkers. But it looks like a serious like military fighting game. <laughs> but it's got balloons and puppies. Yep. <laughs> okay. All right. I don't really feel like I need to pick anything now, but uh, <laughs> I, I will give you one pick. This is a pick that probably many people are already using. It's a little tool from Google called Google Keep. It's basically to do MVC on steroids, and uh, it's just a checklist app, but it does have one nifty feature, which is if you have a special person in your life who likes to give you lists of things to do that never end and share them with you, you can do that with Google <laughs> Keep. You can make checklists, share them with people, and then they can check them off and you can see them get checked off, which is great. Maybe you used to do this on paper. Now you can do it on your phone. That's all. All right. Um, oh, and you can hook balloons to it, I think. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> So I've got a couple of picks. The first one is uh, just a reminder that I have been reaching out to people who listen to the various podcasts that I'm involved with. You can get on my calendar and have a 15-minute chat with me. Um, I've had a lot of people say, well, I'm new to programming. I want to talk to you anyway. Uh, go to javascriptjabber.com slash 15 minutes. That's javascriptjabber.com slash 15 minutes. And yeah, it'll let you pick a time on my calendar and we'll talk over Skype. And I've been meeting just the awesomest people who listen to the shows. So I, I want to talk to you. So go sign up. The other thing that I'm going to pick, I backed a Kickstarter campaign back in like January for the Pebble Time Watch. And I got it yesterday. And it's one of those smart watches. I've seen a few people with the Apple Watch. I don't think it's quite as nice as the Apple Watch. It's also not quite as expensive as the Apple Watch. But it has been really kind of fun to have something on my wrist that, you know, tells me when somebody's trying to reach me on Skype 
I only have a few different types of notifications and if they get too annoying, I'll turn them off too. But it's really nice. I can also control my phone from my watch. And so for me, like the ultimate combination is to put uh, Bluetooth headphones on and then on my watch, I can, you know, when I'm running and stuff, it'll send me the notification to, you know, to stop running and uh, and walk and then to start running again and stuff. And it just vibrates on my wrist. And if I need to control the music or anything else, then I can just do it from my watch. So I don't have to pull my phone out and look at it while I'm trying to jog. So uh, anyway, I'm really digging that. One other pick I have, and this is something that Jonathan Stark on the Freelancer Show uh, brought up because we were talking about things that you should be doing on a regular basis as a freelancer. And we talked a bit about fitness. And there's a Facebook group called 100 Burpees or 100 Days of Burpees. And the idea is, is that on day one, you do one burpee and on day two, you do two burpees. And on day, and so at day 100, you do 100 burpees. And anyway, so there's a Facebook group where you just, you know, you post where you're at. So if you're interested in that, then you can probably find it. Um, I'll find the link and put it in the show notes. Uh, you have to ask to join, but it's a public group. So I'm sure they'll just let you in unless you're being a jerk. So anyway, those are my picks. Okay, Dan. wait a second. Wait a second. I have to add a pick. I found a Metal Gear Solid 5 video of where he uses his horse's droppings to stop a Jeep. It's like spins out, and then he puts the whole Jeep in a balloon. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole Jeep with all the guys go up in the balloon because they ran over his horse. <laughs> the horse the horse poop. <laughs> oh, man. You've understood it. I can see. Yes. <laughs> this I'm, is why I'm I play so the buying game. this game immediately. Okay, I'm oh, watching the video now. <laughs> I'm you just Google. Show notes. You just Google Metal Gear Solid Five horse poop Jeep yep. balloon. <laughs> it's actually horse poop gameplay. <laughs> oh my oh gosh. man, I, I so would have just come up with that search on my own. <laughs> now everybody's wondering why I thought to, to Google. <laughs> That's right. All right. It was like the top result. I'm sure it was. <laughs> All right, Dan, what are your picks? All right. So my first pick is a TV show that I've been rewatching lately, and it's called Broad City. It's about two girls in New York who are kind of opposite personalities. And it's really hard to describe what it is about because there's nothing really happening. But I've had tremendous amount of fun watching that show. And it's, I guess it's comedy for millennials, but uh, I'm a millennial. So yeah, that that works for me. Uh, It's really great. And my second pick is uh, a new album by Jamie XX, who is from the band called The XX. And he released an album uh, called In Color uh, with British Spelling, as far as I remember. And it's a really nice album. I mean, I don't know anything about rave culture. It's inspired by rave culture, I think. But it's just so good to program to. I just keep it on repeat all the time. So, yeah, there's that. And my third pick is going to be a JavaScript framework, which I was sure uh, should have been. Um, I-, I looked the peaks on the website because I was sure somebody was going to bring it up, but I didn't see it there. So I'm picking uh, Cycle.js uh, by Andreas Stoltz. It's a library that it uses virtual DOM inside. It's a library that aims to find the fundamental abstractions for building UIs. So it's kind of trying to, I, I don't know, find better abstractions than React. And it is based on uh, observables. Uh, on Rx, and it is very functional. And even if you don't plan to use something like that in the near future, because it's uh, it's still immature, its ecosystem is immature, you ju- just subscribe to its uh, repository and read, uh, read through its issues, because the discussions happening there are really interesting, and you can gather uh, a lot of ideas just looking through them. So those are my picks. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Dan. Thanks for asking. If if people yeah. want to support your work or check out what you're doing, where do they go? Uh, they go to patreon.com slash reactdx, all uh, without dashes or anything, just patreon.com slash reactdx. 
DX as developer experience. So that's my Patreon. You can you can still uh, put some money there because before it's too late and it's over. Awesome. Thanks, Dan. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests. 